0: So when I first got engaged to Jason, a number of my friends, young women at the time, like really gushed to me about how lucky I was, luckier than they thought I realized. And it wasn't actually because they were like smitten with Jason. I mean, maybe some of them were, but ultimately I think it was because they were smitten with his family. I was the first to nab a Martins, And amongst the young women in our community, this was a big deal. To understand this, you have to understand that the Martins were like legendary in our church of around a 1,000 people for being this standout family. Jason's parents were former pastors who, though they weren't on staff there at the time, they still led in significant ways in our church. They were sought out regularly for their wisdom, for their care, for their deep faith. Uh, The five kids all kind of followed their parents' modeling each going above and beyond to contribute their gifts to the community in in significant ways. Um, Every church, every year, our church gave an award away to a volunteer of the year that made special contributions to the life of the community. And the only time they ever gave it to a whole family, seven people at once, was when they gave it to the Martins. So the Martins were also extremely hospitable, opening up their home every Monday night for Monday night dinners which included not only the family, but anyone who'd appreciate a little love at the dinner table. An invite to their home for Thanksgiving was always a special treat. The five kids seemed extremely close in their connections. Like they all really enjoyed each other, cooperated well. Being around them felt fun, full of love and joy. So I understood what these young women meant when they told me how lucky I was. I was so fortunate I was being adopted into this family. I knew it, particularly after living my whole adult life to that point, thousands of miles away from my family of origin, having this welcome into family was such a gift. And for the first few years of our marriage, that gift did indeed keep giving. And I anticipated that it always would. And then a few years after Jason and I were married, One day, all of us Martins, adult kids, and the couple of spouses that were in the mix at that point, we were all at our church together on a Sunday, and we were invited by the senior pastor into a conference room after the service. And there we found my mother-in-law. And with the support of the pastor, she told us that she was separating from her husband. She named serious issues in their marriage and personal lives that we had been completely unaware of to that point. Issues that would prove irreconcilable. It was a complete shock. And the shocks kept coming. Within weeks, it became clear that separation would mean divorce. And divorce very quickly led to my father-in-law's remarriage. The home Jason was raised in, the home of every Monday night dinner uh, was sold and the solidarity and safety all of us had experienced being a part of this Martin's family that was forever changed. It was an experience that was deeply disruptive for the lives we thought we were living, and it took years to sort through all that was lost, all that would needed to be healed, And honestly, it's a journey of healing that over 13 years later, I think everyone involved is still on. Many of us, if we mapped our life on a timeline, we would see some major standout events. Some of these are really positive, falling in love, landing a great job. But some are also really challenging, perhaps even tragic. Whether they're positive or painful. These are often the the events that move the trajectory of our lives one way or another. They become defining moments, so to speak. I'd argue we're living in an unprecedented time in many ways. None of us have lived in a moment quite like this. It feels to me like a defining moment. In a moment like this, everything might feel unstable our faith, our spirituality, that may not comfort us in the way it has before. Our sacred stories might not speak to us in the ways they did in the past. So as I've been considering in this season that we've all entered into in recent months and asking myself where in this time, where in our tradition might where our tradition might have something helpful. I keep finding myself thinking back to a part of the biblical story that, honestly, I haven't heard preached on very much, if ever. It's a part that I think is regularly skipped over as people are studying the Bible, particularly Christians. Maybe this era of the biblical narrative feels foreign to us much of the time. Maybe it just feels depressing. But today I find myself drawn to this often neglected part of the story because in our tradition, we do have a season of history that was also disorienting in its level of crisis. A season where a community of faith had to deal with catastrophic crisis and come to regard what was to be understood about faith and its practice and doing life in general differently. And this comes to us in a part of the Bible that many of us might be less familiar with, the the latter part of the Hebrew Bible or some call it the Old Testament. So what's the event I'm referring to? It's the Babylonian exile. So today I'm starting a new teaching series that we're gonna be engaging in the weeks to come and I'm calling it Faith in the Exile. And in this series, we're going to explore together what an experience of faith or spirituality in a season of prolonged crisis could look like. And we'll consider afresh our ancestors and their experiences of exile, as well as how their community in their time and afterwards came to make meaning from the experience. We'll see if there are things we can learn about enduring our own places of displacement disorientation, loss, and also the opportunity for transformation that a season in exile can bring. Today, a good chunk of our focus will be on background and context. I don't assume you all really know a lot about this part of the biblical narrative. Honestly, before I went to seminary, I really didn't. So we're gonna have a bit of a Bible history conversation today. So we can all be somewhat on the same page as to what the exile even was. And then we'll take a look at a text that was written for the people of that era and consider a bit together how it might be instructive for us. So let's start with the background. What exactly is the exile? What happened there? Well, to understand that, we need to do a quick biblical narrative lesson, okay? By and large, the story of the Hebrew Bible or what some Christians call the Old Testament is, is really the story of the Hebrew people. And it's their connection to the God they knew as Yahweh, a, a name that simply means I am. And I'm gonna have, I think we have some slides that just kind of walk you through some bullet points. The story of these people and their connection to this God is rooted in the story of Abraham and he receives direction from God to take his wife, Sarah, to a new land. This is the story at the heart of Genesis, an origin story for the Jewish people. God promises countless descendants to Abraham, promises God will care for these people in a unique way and they will uh, be blessed to live in a land of their own. The dream starts to be fulfilled with the birth of Isaac and through Isaac's grandson, Joseph, The family is protected from famine in the land. They all become refugees in Egypt, and there the descendants prosper so much so that the Egyptians over time become threatened. They enslave the Hebrew people, which seems like a significant setback in God's promise to Abraham. But the promise is reaffirmed in this big way as God intervenes and delivers the descendants of Abraham and Isaac from slavery in Egypt. So that's next big bullet point. God establishes a covenant, another sacred contract with these liberated slaves and gives them a law at Mount Sinai. Now they are grouped in 12 large tribes named after the 12 sons of Jacob. These tribes together make up the body of people that we call Israel. God seems to bless them. As they have a conquest of the promised land. And there they finally establish the nation state of Israel, establish a monarchy with God's chosen King David on the throne. In their capital city, Jerusalem, they eventually build a temple under King Solomon, which becomes the center place for worship, where they perceive God to dwell with them on earth. It would seem that all is now well. The promise has been fulfilled, but things get challenging in the long season of monarchy. Politics get messy. Not every king has a heart like David. Eventually this leads to the first major crisis in Israel's history as a nation. This happened around 930 BC. There was a major political schism in the nation of Israel, and the result is the nation itself divides. It becomes a divided kingdom. I think we have a map there, you can see. This is the divided promised land with the Northern Kingdom and the Southern. So the land of 10 tribes in the North, they become their own nation state. Imagine if some of our own political divisions in the US ended up resulting in like all the states west of the Mississippi just leaving the Union and forming their own government. That's essentially what happens. So the people of Israel break into these two kingdoms, that you have the Northern Kingdom made up of the 10 Northern tribes known as, and that, that now retains the name Israel for their nation state. And in the South, the final two tribes become their own state and that's called the Kingdom of Judah. And there are two monarchs. Israel has more land. Judah retains the capital city of Jerusalem. They get the temple, still. Though there are these divisions, these different political realities, as a people, they're all still kin, right? They all still worship the same God. They still share the same origin story. They practice the same uh, worship practices. They celebrate the same holidays. They're still all the people of promise that God would bless them and sustain them in the land. And then about two centuries after this, the next big crisis hits. Assyrians attack the Northern Kingdom in 722 BC. And the Northern Kingdom eventually falls. It's a brutal conquering. Thousands are horrifically massacred. Those who aren't killed are stripped of their land and they're relocated to various places within the Assyrian empire and assimilated. So their culture is essentially erased the Northern kingdom becomes known as the lost 10 tribes because as a people and a society, they vanish. All that remains now of God's promised people, the people who had once been called Israel in the promised land, now all that was left is this small kingdom of Judah. And though that kingdom does hold on for another couple hundred years, eventually another conquering power comes in to take over. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians take Judah apart. And we have a map of this one too. First, they relocate some of Judah's best and brightest and they take the king, uh, King Jeconiah, and they take his court and all of Judah's young leaders of promise, their religious priests, their most skilled artisans, and they forcibly take them on this journey and relocate them to Babylon. Daniel and his friends, they are part of this contingent that gets relocated. And this goes on for about a decade. And then eventually around 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's army actually destroys Jerusalem altogether. They burn their temple to the ground. The rest of those who were still living in Judah, most of them are brought to Babylon too. Now when this happens, Israel as a people has already come a long way since the glory days when David sat on the throne and Solomon built a temple. They've endured a number of significant blows to the living out of this promise they had held sacred from Yahweh since that era. They've been weakened and destabilized by each one. They've lost political and social unity. They've seen a huge part of their people and their land annihilated. And after everything they've suffered, this final blow, the exile of Judah, this is a devastating calamity. Now they have no land. They have no king. They have no temple. In the greater story of the Jewish and Christian faiths, the Babylonian exile is a defining moment. It's a moment that would forever change this community of faith. Nothing could ever be the same as it had been. There would be a before, there would be an after, but it would not be the same. That's how disruptive this event was in the life of the people of God known as Israel. If we're honest, I think many of us can identify that we also are living through a series of events that feels historically significant. The level of disruption, chaos, disorientation we've experienced in the last few months is really impossible to quantify. We have already, as a community, experienced the loss of the things we took for granted as part of our sacred tradition. We haven't worshiped together in a room in months. Our temple may not have been burned to the ground, but shelter in place orders have physically distanced us from one another. Taking away the opportunity to share connection in a sacred physical space. And I think that's come at a real cost. That's not even to speak of the untold losses of human life, the economic devastation of recent months and more. And on top of the disruption and tragedy of the global pandemic in the last couple of weeks, our nation has erupted in protest to racial injustice, spurred by the tragic and unjust killing of George Floyd by police. Even in the midst of a pandemic when gathering is a dangerous activity, people have been taking to the streets around the world, crying out with a deep voice that what has been cannot continue to be. And the state, as it faces these outcries for justice with protesting bodies in the streets, has often responded through becoming more violent, escalating the anger and raising the level of danger our collective community feels. And all of these latest stressors have come in the midst of a larger season, a backdrop in which our democracy has been deeply undermined in recent years with a presidential election just months away that in theory has the capacity to unseat the leader who's been working to undermine this democracy, there's significant trepidation. The leader and those closest to him have been making it clear for some time he will hold on to power at all costs. All of this coming together feels to me more than any time in my life that I can remember, like a collective defining moment. Of course, no two events in history are the same. But when I consider the intense era we are living in, and I look to our sacred tra- tradition and the stories it tells, I find myself drawn personally to this part of our tradition story in this season. If there's wisdom in our faith, in our tradition to be had for how we endure a difficult season that will no doubt in some way define us. I believe that wisdom could be here. If there are insights on how spirituality could be maintained through a season of prolonged crisis and disruption, I believe the exile may be where those insights could be found. This is what we'll be exploring in the weeks to come throughout this series. So for today, I wanna just take the rest of our time to pivot from the history lesson and look at one of these texts from the exile that I think might be instructive in framing our exploration of this part of the biblical story. As we seek to understand what entering our own experiences of exile mean, perhaps it might be useful to look at a message that was written at the beginning of the Babylonian exile to those who found their world turned upside down as they were uprooted and sent to Babylon. So the message comes to us from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the important voices we're gonna be hearing from in this series. He prophesied before the exile throughout the 10 years that Babylon was assaulting Judah and taking its young leaders to Babylon. Through the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple, as well as throughout the aftermath of all of it. So this word we're gonna take a look at today comes near the beginning of the exile. The king of Judah, Jeconiah, all his courtiers, his family, many of the leaders of Judah have been displaced to Babylon. But Jerusalem itself hasn't yet been destroyed. That would come 10 years later. Jeremiah is one that's left behind in the crippled Jerusalem during that first decade of strife with Babylon. And from there, he feels called to write to those first exiles who've been taken. So we're gonna start with the setup for the letter and then hear Jeremiah's message. You can read along with me. The prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles Nebuchadnezzar had carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. And it was addressed to the elders who were left among the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, to all the people who were exiled in Babylon. He sent it after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the palace officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had been exiled from Jerusalem. He sent it with Elisah, son of Shaphan and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah. King Zedekiah of Judah had sent these men to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the letter said, the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all those he sent into exile to Babylon from Jerusalem, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and allow your daughters to get married so that they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number, do not dwindle away, work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it. For as it prospers, you will prosper. For the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets among you or those who claim to be able to predict the future by divination deceive you. And do not pay any attention to the dreams they are that you are encouraging them to dream. They are prophesying lies to you, claiming my authority to do so, but I do not send them I, the Lord, affirm it. For the Lord says, only when the 70 years of Babylonian rule are over, will I again take up consideration for you. Then I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore you to your homeland. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. When you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. When you seek me in prayer and worship, you will find me available to you. If you seek me with all your heart and soul, I will make myself available to you, said the Lord. Then I will reverse your plight and will regather you from all the nations and all the places where I've exiled you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the places from which I exiled you. Okay, so this is a word to those who've recently found themselves taken into exile. And as we look at it today, I just want to quickly draw our attention to a few things I notice that I think might be helpful for the places we resonate with entering our own season of exile. And the first I think is Jeremiah, the first thing I think Jeremiah says that resonates is essentially this, settle in, You're gonna be here a while, settle in. You're gonna be here a while. This is likely not the news anyone wanted to hear. Remember when Jeremiah wrote these words, Jerusalem was still somewhat present even though it had been significantly damaged. The city hadn't been totally sacked yet. The temple hadn't been burned down. There was a new king that took over in Judah. All of that might've given these leaders some, you know, some sense that things could quickly turn around. They could basically go back to where they were. And Jeremiah names this, and he draws the people's attention to some religious leaders that were present with them, giving these exiles some false comfort. He says, don't let these prophets among you or those who claim to be able to predict the future deceive you. So what was the deceit? Jeremiah was concerned with. Later in the chapter, Jeremiah makes it more clear, these leaders aren't naming the injustices, the people in power have been enabling and enacting. They have not been standing up to the powerful, confronting them for their idolatry, for the ways they've oppressed others, for their own safety and security. They haven't been speaking to the ways the people of Israel have been dishonoring their part of the covenant that they had made with Yahweh. Instead, they've been telling these leaders what they wanted to hear. God's on your side, all will be well, you'll be back in Jerusalem soon. As much as the people hoped life could go back to normal quickly, Jeremiah is here to say that's not possible. Actually, you got 70 years in Babylon, which most likely means whoever I'm speaking to is not going to see the return. So settle in, we're gonna be here a while. When life gets unstable, I think all of us can resonate with a desire for things to return to a more stable state as soon as possible. When things were first shutting down here in early March, most of the orders were just for a couple of weeks. Many of us couldn't have imagined at that point that we would still be sheltering in place in June As this reality became more clear, we've all had to receive our own version of this message. Oh, settle in, we're gonna be here a while. There's another place this rings resonant to me this week. As I already alluded to in the last couple of weeks, many folks of privilege, particularly those who are white, but also many people of color who are not black, have been waking up in new ways to the systemic oppression the black community has been facing for centuries since before our nation's founding, and also to how the sins of that history are still active with us today. And as that waking up has been happening, there can be a rush of activity to like, fix the problem, to make things better, to restore our sense of stability So people are taking to the streets in unprecedented numbers and white fragility and how to be an anti-racist books have flown off the shelves. And these are very encouraging signs because of the action in the streets. Meaningful things have happened this week that likely wouldn't have happened otherwise. Charges have been brought. Contracts with the police have been severed. We shouldn't celebrate these victories. But ultimately, buying a book on anti-racism doesn't make you an anti-racist, right? Don't get me wrong, I am a big fan of Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility or Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Both of those books have been extremely helpful to me in my own journey of understanding my complicity with whiteness. But they've also shown me that buying a book doesn't make you an anti-racist. You still have to read the book. And when you read it, you have to do the hard internal work of discerning where white supremacy and racism has been, a part of your own identity and story. And that's not quick work. It's actually lifetime work. As Ibram Kendi himself says, the journey from racist to anti-racist is always ongoing. We need to temper our desire to rush the process and return to some sense of stability for perhaps, though we may have been unaware, our stability was actually an unjust stability built on the oppression of others. This project of dismantling white supremacy, this is a long game project that will require sustained commitment. This moment may be a real turning point in that dismantling, and I genuinely pray that it is. But it will only bear the fruit we really desire if as a collective we all commit to a season of discomfort, disorientation, a destabilizing season where those of us who have had the privilege not to engage or to consider the ap- impact of racism on our collective lives are willing to stay humble and teachable. That means each of us who is not black must be willing to do the work we need to do to, our, to own our own complicity in whiteness and to come behind our black brothers and sisters as they lead the fight for their God-given right to live freely and safely knowing that their lives do matter. So welcome to the exile, friends. Settle in. We're going to be here a while. The second thing I want to draw our attention to though, is an important word to hold alongside the first. There is life for you to live here. There is life for you to live here. Yes, Jeremiah is saying you're gonna be here a while. This is a long game and I know that's not what you wanna hear, but he's also saying even in the exile, God wants you to find life. There is life to be lived here. Have kids, get married, plant gardens, tell stories, be community to one another. There is life to be lived in the exile. There is love to be had. There are children to be born. There is art to be made. There are things to celebrate, even though those celebrations may look nothing like they had before. Did you all see the video of those dance parties in the streets this week? In Oakland, there was an action that was meant to resist the curfew. Interestingly, the curfew was lifted the next day as thousands took to the streets and danced a spontaneous dance party. There is life in the exile. Amen. With this call to not just surrender and try to survive, but to live in the exile, Jeremiah is asking his community to imagine life differently. This is ultimately a creative exercise. He's asking them to think of new ways, new ways to marry, new ways to have kids, new ways to practice faith. He's asking them to mix with people they hadn't before to fuse with folks they never would have considered connecting with. Go ahead, let your kids marry some Babylonians. No one would have dreamt of that before. Let's find ways to build alliances, he said, and learn from our neighbors, even as you find ways to hold on to your own traditions and cultures. In the land of Babylon, he's telling them that their own blessing will actually come as they bless those they are in contact with and build new diverse coalitions together. Ultimately, I hear Jeremiah reminding them that to still pursue, that they need to still pursue that which brings joy to life. The pursuit of joy is an affirmation of life. Amen. The pursuit of joy is an affirmation that we yet will live. When Jason's parents divorced, it unraveled so many things for us, particularly for Jason. Because his parents had been pastors and much of his life to that point, um, family and church had been like all wrapped up together. When the family life fell apart, it presented a crisis of faith as well. It was his entry, deep dive entry point into deconstruction. There was a season where I wasn't sure this whole dream of someday starting a community of faith that we were already on that journey, but I wasn't sure it would ever come to pass because we were sorting through really significant questions about what faith and spiritual community are even for, what they mean, but in that place of exile and angst, we also found new experiences, new voices, new places of wisdom, new ways to navigate the journey of faith that weren't built on certainty, but possibility, weren't, weren't about dogma, but were about mystery. And we found new joy in the journey truthfully, we wouldn't be who we are. And I don't think Haven would be what it is if we hadn't learned to imagine the journey of faith and spiritual community differently in that season. In this season, we too have begun imagining differently. Imagining as a global community what weddings can look like, what graduations and birthday parties and church services look like. This week, been more, there's been more imagining around what whole communities can look like. Communities that don't respond to crisis with violent law enforcement, but social support and mutual aid. To us, I believe Jeremiah is calling us to commit to this life, affirming, reimagining. That is part of the turning point we seek. If the exile is to serve any purpose, Perhaps this is the purpose, like a a caterpillar entering a chrysalis. The period in the exile transforms us so that when we emerge, we are different in important ways. And that brings me to the final word to the exiles that I think is important for us to hold on to too. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. Jeremiah made it clear there would be an end to the exile. It might not be the one any of his audience that he was speaking to would live to see. It may have been for their children. It may have been for their grandchildren. But it would come. Eventually, we will no longer be in Babylon, he is saying. This is not forever. The divine has a plan for us as a collective, not for harm, but for good. There is hope in the future. May we, in the midst of our own exiles, hear that word too. Yes, friends, we may be here a while, perhaps much longer than any of us would choose but as a human community, we will emerge. This moment will pass. I pray that when it does, whenever we find ourselves clearly in the after, we will be changed from before in ways that more clearly embody the just world we all long for and need. May it be, O God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends.